are listening to a message by Pastor David Guzik for Enduring Word. For more information about our ministry, please visit EnduringWord.com. Well, hello, everybody. My name is David Guzik, and we're here together on a Thursday afternoon, or at least it's afternoon here on the West Coast of the United States, where I'm bringing this to you from. If you recognize the surroundings, maybe you've joined us before. This is kind of my home office in the back of garden of my home. And I get together here whenever I can on a Thursday, and we have a time of question and answers live on this YouTube channel. Uh, just a few notes about the YouTube channel, something that I'll probably repeat again. Uh, we are getting very close, thank the Lord, to 100,000 subscribers. By the way, if you haven't subscribed yet, go ahead and you can add yourself to that number. Because when we do hit 100,000, we're going to have a special giveaway. And I anticipate, God willing and if we live, we're going to do this next Thursday uh, I'm going to give away a very special copy of, I'll turn around and show it to you, uh, this book, The Story of My Life by William Taylor, Bishop of Africa. It's really a remarkable book, and uh, I'm going to give away my copy of it, uh, just because I think it's an awesome little gift, and it'll commemorate our getting to 100,000 subscribers. And if I can say... Look, I know that in the world of YouTube, 100,000 subscribers puts you nowhere near the people who have a lot of subscribers. Good heavens, there's people with tens of millions of subscribers on YouTube, and there's a lot of good ministries. There's a lot of good Christian content providers who have uh, far more subscribers than I do. Uh, I'm really pleased with this milestone for us. It is a milestone for us to reach 100,000. Especially because on our YouTube channel, we're really not speaking much to, uh, you know, the hot topics of the day, whatever controversies are. I'm, of course, we're not afraid to talk about them, and we'll touch them, especially when there's a question rising about them. But uh, this isn't an apologetics-oriented sort of online ministry, nor is it sort of a, you know, controversy-oriented Look, the, the people who do that well on YouTube, I have a lot of respect for. I have a lot of respect for my friend Mike Winger, who I think does an excellent job. I recommend his YouTube channel to you. I think Elisa Childers is another person who both on YouTube and through her podcast does a great job with this. And there's several others as well. So I appreciate those who do a good job with sort of the apologetics, controversial issues, those kind of things. But really, that's never been our focus. Our focus, even though we touch those things from time to time, our focus has really been on uh, the Bible, Christian living, and the rest of it. And um, a lot of that's based on the fact that uh, the broadest reach I have in ministry is not through this YouTube channel, but through the online Bible commentary that people access through websites and through the app. So, hope you can join us next week when we get together for this time, and uh, hopefully, again, God willing, and if we live, we will have crossed that 100,000 subscriber barrier. And again, if you haven't subscribed yet, well, maybe now's a good time to do that. What we normally do here on a Thursday afternoon is we begin with a question. Uh, maybe it's come in by email, maybe social media. This particular question 
is one that's left over from last week. Look, we, we rarely are able to get to every question that comes in, and our moderator, Devin, uh, looks over questions, and a lot of times he's looking for the questions that kind of are most clearly presented. That's one important thing. Uh, but then also would have the broadest appeal to those who might be watching our channel. So here's a question that comes from Teal last week over the live chat. And Teal asked this, I'm teaching a Bible study and I studied that Satan has dominion over this world. But then someone in our group said that's not true. I'm confused. I researched and I got conflicting messages. All right, well, Teal, let me speak to you about this. There's a good reason why you found conflicting messages when you did a little research. Because to be honest, Teal, the, mess, the message in the Bible on this subject, does Satan rule the world? It's mixed. Now, I would not say that it's a contradictory message, but it is a mixed message. And it's simply for this purpose. There is a sense in which Satan is the ruler of this world. And there's a sense in which he is not. And the Bible speaks in regard to both of those senses. So let me speak first to the first principle. And I'll deal with this one first. The idea that Satan is the ruler of this world, that Satan is the God of this age. And all I can say is that this is very plainly stated in the scriptures. Without reading the verses themselves, let me just sort of give you a summary of this. First of all, Satan is called the ruler of this world three times by Jesus himself. John chapter 12, verse 31, chapter 14, verse 30, and chapter 16, verse 11. Again, I want to remind you, that's Jesus saying that Satan is the ruler of this world. You also have the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4, calling Satan the God of this age. In Ephesians chapter 2, verse 2, Paul said that Satan is the prince of the power of the air, who now works in the sons of disobedience. And the phrasing behind that phrase, uh, the prince of the power of the air, kind of has an idea of a realm of authority. And then finally, in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12, Paul wrote that Satan and his agents are the rulers of the darkness of this age. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12 doesn't have just Satan in mind. It's talking about principalities and powers and forces of wickedness in high places, but certainly it would include Satan while having a broader application than him. So look, that's just the first principle. I mean, if we were to go only by those things, we would say, yes, Satan is the ruler of this world. Jesus said, so that's a title Jesus gave him. He's the God of this age. He's the prince of the power of the air. He's part of the rulers of the darkness of this age. Okay, that's the one principle. Now, let's take a look at the other principle. And for this one, I'm just going to read to you several verses, several wonderful verses, but all together with this same theme, that the Lord reigns, and Satan does not have ultimate dominion. Psalm 24, verse 1 says, by the way, this is also repeated in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, twice, the earth is the Lord's and all its fullness the world and those who dwell within. Or Psalm 115, verse 3, but our God is in heaven. He does whatever he pleases. In other words, God's in charge. You see, whatever we might want to say about Satan in his aspect of uh, the ruler of this world, the God of this age, 
we do not want to act as if Satan has ultimate power, ultimate authority, ultimate dominion. First Chronicles chapter 16, verse 31 says, let the heavens rejoice and let the earth be glad and let them say among the nations, the Lord reigns. May I emphasize to you, it's not Satan reigning. It's not like this battle between Satan and the Lord to find out who's going to control the destiny of the universe. Maybe Satan is deceived enough that he thinks that's the case, but it's not the case. It's the Lord who reigns. And then just a couple others. Revelation chapter 4, verse 11. This is a song coming to us from heaven. You are worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things and by your will they exist and were created. Notice, by your will they exist and were created. Not only did God create Satan as an exercise of God's will, but he only continues to exist. Friends, God could think a thought and Satan would be eliminated. That's just how it is. Now, let me read you one final verse here. Jude chapter 1. There is only one chapter in the book of Jude. Verse 25. To God alone, our Savior, who alone is wise, be glory and majesty, dominion and power, both now and forevermore. Amen. You know, I gave you that verse there, Teal, especially because you mentioned Satan having dominion. I want to make it clear that ultimately all dominion belongs to the Lord. All right, well, simply said, how do we reconcile these things? How do we deal with this? I mean, because on the one hand, <clears throat> Satan is said to be the ruler of this age, the God of this world. That's what we read in the scriptures. On the other hand, um, we're told that the Lord reigns, that the Lord is ultimate in all things. So, how do we reconcile these things? Well, friends, God rules and reigns over all. Whatever dominion or authority Satan has, it is because God has allowed it. And God has allowed it because he will ultimately work for the furtherance, or it will ultimately work for the furtherance of God's great plan of the ages. So, whatever... Satan does. He does it within the permission of God who rules over all. Satan does not have what we might call free reign to do whatever he desires. God restricts what Satan can and can't do. Now, it is true, for example, 1 Peter chapter 5 verse 8 says that Satan walks about like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. That's absolutely true. And it is true that Satan has some authority as the ruler of this world, as Jesus called him that by that title three times, and as the God of this age, as 2 Corinthians chapter 4 says. So, Satan does walk about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he... That, that describes that God doesn't... Um, God allows Satan some latitude. He has some authority, but it is never freedom to do whatever he pleases. It is never authority that is anything close to the authority that God has. Now, some people think that 
Satan gained his dominion, his position of ruler of the world. They, they think that Satan gained this because Adam forfeited it to him by his disobedience in the Garden of Eden. In that act, and in every sin ever since, humanity has, in some sense, recognized the authority of Satan and not the authority of the Lord. Now, this is an idea I think that can be pressed too far, but I think that there's some significance to it. So, you could say that, at least in some sense, mankind was given dominion over the world. Uh, God gave that to Adam in the Garden of Eden. Adam forfeited that dominion to Satan, but Satan can't do as he pleases. I always think it's significant that in the book of Job, the first couple of chapters, Satan had to ask permission to afflict Job in certain ways. He couldn't work without God's allowance, without God's permitting. And the same was true with Peter in Luke chapter 22, where Jesus told Peter that Satan has asked for him. Ultimately, it's this way. The work of Satan will further God's eternal purpose. Now, I understand that's very difficult sometimes for us to understand that, for us to comprehend it when we see the wickedness and the pain and the difficulty that Satan and all his agents have worked upon this earth. And we understand that the Bible says, Jesus said that Satan has come to steal, to kill, and to destroy, and that work wreaks havoc over the earth. But ultimately, God will work all things together for his purpose. And even the work of Satan, permitted by God on this earth, will further God's eternal purpose. So, if I could just state it simply for you, Teal, there is a sense in which Satan has authority and rulership in this world, but never in an ultimate sense. In the end, he's always serving the purpose of God. So, I hope that's helpful for you, Teal. Um, hope that gives you a little bit of insight. And um, let's go on to the questions that have come in in the live chat. Let me get myself to them on my screen. And the first one comes from Adonis. Adonis asks this question. What will be the fulfillment or the antitype of Rosh Hashanah? What does Rosh Hashanah represent and foreshadow? Are the trumpets of Rosh Hashanah Related to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 52, that's the verse that speaks of the last trump uh, before the catching away of God's people, as does 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Well, Adonis, that's a very interesting question. And in my mind, the real answer to that is found in Leviticus chapter 23. What I'm going to do right now is click over to my commentary on Leviticus chapter 23, and at the bottom of that commentary page, again, it's at EnduringWord.com. Listen, just for the viewers or listeners who aren't aware of this, um, I, I do have a written commentary on the entire Bible. And some people find it helpful. It's kind of surprisingly the way that God has given me the broadest reach in this world uh, as far as ministry goes. But if I can say it without sounding strange about it, uh, millions of people use this Bible commentary every month. And so, uh, if you go to EnduringWord.com or a partner website that has my Bible commentary is Blue Letter Bible, a great Bible resource, blb.org. If you go to either one of those sites and go to the material on Leviticus chapter 23, at the bottom of that, 
I speak of the prophetic significance of the feasts found in Leviticus 23. In Leviticus 23, they detail the seven feasts on the calendar of Israel. And what's interesting is those feasts are grouped together. There are four spring feasts that are fairly close to each other. And then there are three fall feasts also grouped together. There's a separation of time between the last of the first four spring feasts and the three, the first of the three fall feasts. Now, as a group, those first four feasts speak to events in the first coming of Jesus. You have Passover, which clearly points to Jesus as our Passover. You have the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which points to the time of Jesus' burial and his perfect, sinless sacrifice on the cross. You have the Feast of First Fruits, which points to the resurrection of Jesus. Jesus Christ is the first fruits of the resurrection. And then you have the Feast of Pentecost. That points to the birth of the church and the harvest of souls that came from it. Pentecost was a harvest festival. So those first four spring feasts... Again, a Pentecost, unleavened bread, first fruits, and Passover, they all collectively can be connected to events in the first coming of Jesus. Then, on Israel's calendar through the year, you have a break. And then after the break, after summer is over and fall has emerged, you have a significant time gap, almost four months. Now, what were those four months concerned with? Well, in ancient Israel, those four months were generally a time of harvest. And I would say that in our current age, we have an analogy here. The first four feasts are connected to events connected to the first coming of Jesus. Then you have a time of harvest, a time of ingathering. And then you have the second group of the last three feasts. The first is the Feast of Trumpets, That's the one that Adonis is asking about. And I believe that the Feast of Trumpets points to that ultimate holy convocation of God's people at the sound of a trumpet. That's what the Feast of Trumpets was. There'd be a blowing of trumpets, Rosh Hashanah, blowing of trumpets to call together the people of God in a a holy day of convocation. And I, I think that the ultimate holy day of gathering is going to be the catching away of the church described in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 16 and 17. I would also say that this points as well to God's ultimate gathering of Israel for his special purposes in the very last days. So you have the Feast of Trumpets, then you have the Day of Atonement, not only pointing to the ultimate perfect atonement Jesus offered on our behalf, but also of the affliction and salvation that Israel will see during the Great Tribulation. And then finally, you have the Feast of Tabernacles, which points to the millennial rest and comfort of God for Israel and for all of God's people. Matter of fact, the Feast of Tabernacles is specifically said to be celebrated during the millennium. That's in Zechariah chapter 14. Now, Donis, let me add one more thing to this. There's at least some evidence. I I don't believe that it's crystal clear and beyond all controversy, but there's at least some evidence that each of the four feasts pointing to the first 
coming of Jesus saw their prophetic fulfillment on the exact day of that feast. Jesus, according to John chapter 19, verse 14, Jesus was crucified on the Passover. Uh, The body of Jesus was buried and his holy and pure sacrifice was acknowledged by God during the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Jesus rose from the dead on the celebration of first fruits, the day after Passover's Sabbath. And the church was founded on the very day of Pentecost, beginning a great harvest of souls into God's kingdom. For this reason, there are some people who suggest that it would be consistent of God to gather his people to himself on the day of the Feast of Trumpets, the Jewish holiday of Rosh Hashanah. There are people who believe that the catching away of God's people that's described in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 16 and 17, the harpazo, the catching away, some people call it the rapture of the church, but we can just use the biblical phrase, the catching away of God's people. Some people believe that that will happen on the Feast of Trumpets because it seems that possibly the first four events happened on the very day of those feasts. Um, Could this be the case? Yes, it could be the case, but I wouldn't say with a great deal of certainty. I would be reserved in my predictions in that regard. Adonis, I hope that helps you. Let me go on to the next question here from Justin, who says, do you agree with any of the five points of tulip? The only one I feel like I could agree with would be P. Uh, That's the perseverance of the saints. Well, Justin While I am not a Calvinist, I am not reformed in my doctrine, uh, I've received a lot that I'm grateful to God for from reformed writers, mostly those from previous generations and Calvinistic authors and preachers and even some in our own day. So, while I don't think of myself as being anti-Calvinist or anti-reformed, I certainly don't agree with them on every point of doctrine. As for TULIP, those five points of Calvinism, uh, total depravity, unlimited atonement, um, irresistible grace, um, limited atonement, and the perseverance of the saints, uh, those particular things I, I think are, so much of it has to do with how those statements are understood. Totally depraved. Do I believe that mankind is totally depraved? Yes. Yes, but it depends how you define total depravity. Our sinfulness has touched every aspect of our being. There's no part of our being that's not fallen in some way. Now, does that mean that mankind is unable to... uh, Anyway, let, let me just pause with that. Total depravity. Next one is unconditional election, the you in Tulip. Um... Does God choose people from before the foundation of the world and not just based on what they would do? Yes, he does. Again, it's how a person would state it and understand it. Limited atonement. Uh, Did God die for the sins of the world? Absolutely, the Bible says so. But is his death, the death of Jesus, only effective for those who believe? Absolutely, the Bible says so that too. Um, Irresistible grace. Again, I believe that the grace of God can be resisted, but I also believe that God's purposes will always be fulfilled. Perseverance of the saints. I believe that those who are really God's people will endure to the end. 
So again, you know, we, we could talk about these things and a lot of times it's really just a matter of how these things are understood. Uh, so I, I guess it, there's a saying, Justin, and forgive me for, you know, using this saying, that, that the devil is in the details. And so I could find some way of stating total depravity, unconditional election, irresistible, or limited atonement, irresistible grace, and perseverance of faith. I could find some way of stating those concepts that I think is biblical. But I think that the way most Calvinists and most Reformed people take those statements, I think many times they go beyond what the scriptures themselves teach. For me, the essence of Reformed doctrine the, the core matter is not so much the five points. And I, I'm kind of bored talking about the five points with Calvinists. To me, the more significant issue is, does regeneration come before faith? Is a person born again before they believe? Or do we believe and are we born again? Now, let me say, without reservation, I say, that God must do a prior work in a person before they can believe. Absolutely. Jesus said, no one can come to me unless the Father draws him. It, God initiates. God has to do a work first or nobody would come to him. That's absolutely clear. I just don't think that there's biblical warrant to believe, and actually the Bible teaches otherwise, that that work is regeneration, that it's being born again. I think we believe and then we're born again. I think that's what the scriptures teach. Not that we are born again and then we believe. So, uh, that's the main crux I would say is a difference between myself and classic Reformed theology as well as many other aspects. You know, Reformed theology goes so far beyond uh, the theology of salvation, what a person believes, and there would be other places that I would disagree with Reformed theology. Okay, our next question comes from Susan. How do I reconcile faith and God's will? Well, Susan, if I understand your question correctly, I would just say it like this. We have faith that God's will is good. Now, that doesn't make us fatalistic. No, not at all. We believe that God, as part of his will, ordains his people to pray, to act. And we believe that prayer matters. You know, I've been going through lately the book of Numbers, and there's two remarkable instances in the book of Numbers where Moses prays, and at least according to the text of Scripture, because of Moses' prayer, God withheld his hand of judgment against Israel. Now, I, I think that we have to say that the prayer of Moses mattered. It mattered whether or not Moses certainly thought it did. And the way God presents the account to us in the scripture would tell us that the prayer of Moses mattered. If we are so focused on the sovereign will of God that we think that human actions don't matter, then we've misunderstood the sovereign will of God. And we need to recalibrate that thinking. Both things are true. 
God has a sovereign plan for all the ages, which he is unfolding, coming down to the participation of individual lives. Nevertheless, what we do as men and women with real choices, and friends, I believe that. I believe that we have real choices. God has given to us real choices to make. As men and women with real choices, our choices matter. And God uses those choices in the unfolding way of his plan. So, Susan, I would just say, ask God to give you greater faith to believe that his will is good. And to the best of our ability, we are to discern what the will of God is by reading our Bibles, by understanding his word. We discern what the will of God is and we pray for God's will to be put in action. Now, I know that sounds strange and contradictory to some people. They say, if it's God's will, why do I have to pray for it? Listen, I can't explain everything about this. This is Some of it is, goes beyond our human understanding and rationale. However, I would say this, that there are aspects of God's will that he waits to perform until his people partner with him in prayer. Now, that's all part of God's choosing. That's exactly what God wants to do. But I believe that there are definitely aspects to God's will that are just like that. Hope that's helpful for you, Susan. Let me go on to the next question from Gabriel. Tolotrienia. Uh, I believe me, please forgive me if I've not, I'm gonna pronounce the easiest name of the three that you've given me there. So, Should a pastor be a political leader? Gabriel, um, I believe it's absolutely fine for pastors to be political leaders and to be politically involved. I think that there should be more of that and not less. Now, certainly not every pastor. Probably it's very few pastors that are called to actually take political office, to run for city council, to run for the school board, to run for mayor or some other office. But I see no contradiction to a calling as a pastor and a dual calling, a dual role to do good in the community through the political process. Now, what they do in that role may be a different matter. In that role, they have the opportunity to honor God and to glorify him, to stand for God's truth and to display the love and the nature of Christ. They have the opportunity to do that or the opportunity to do elsewise. But I don't see anything automatically disqualifying at all for a pastor to be involved with um, politics. Now, here is the tricky part. And this has to do with pastors who are involved politically and uh, just believers who are involved politically. Here's the difficult part about it. I think that Christians should be politically involved, especially in a democracy. Listen, if God has placed you in a nation or a community that is a democracy, that means he's given you a vote, a participation, a stewardship. And I believe that you should use that in a way that honors and glorifies God. You, you should read the word. You should vote according to the Bible and according to Christian ethics and morality. I believe that's very clear. Now, now, here's the tricky part. I believe Christians should be politically involved, politically engaged without 
putting their hope in politics. And Gabriel, this is a very difficult thing for many believers to do. There's just something seductive. There's something powerful about the political process and political power in itself that makes it easy for Christians who start getting involved in politics to start putting their hope in politics. Friends, our hope is never ultimately in a politician or a political party or in laws that are passed or even in good things that might happen in our community. Our hope is ultimately in Jesus Christ. And while we should be engaged and seek to do whatever good we can do in our community through the political process, those are good things, but we need to take care that we don't put our hope in politics. Our hope is in Jesus Christ. So that's really the message I would give, Gabriel, to any pastor or any believer who wants to get involved in the political process. You can do a lot of good for your community and God's kingdom through the political process, but don't put your hope in politics. And I'll just say one more thing. I think Christians always need to be cautious. They need to be careful, understanding that politicians often use Christians for their purposes. Christians need to be a little bit cynical, maybe just a tiny bit, but Christians need to be a little bit cynical about politicians and always look for discernment from God as to how they may be being used, being played, so to speak, by a politician. It just almost seems like it's in the nature of politics to do that. Next question comes from Pitasoni. Pitasoni asks, when we get to heaven, is God going to take away our free will? But if we still have our free will, is it possible for us to sin again? Pitasoni, I would say that there, that in a way, our free will will be taken away. Now, in a way, I would just put it this way that our available choices will be constrained in heaven. There will be no opportunity to sin. Now, perhaps we could sin in heaven, and I'm just speaking purely theoretically here. Perhaps we could sin in heaven if we had opportunity, but there will be no world, there will be no fleshly nature, there will be no devil in heaven. And so I think we won't have opportunity. But I would suggest to you an analogy between humanity and between angelic beings. It seems that for angelic beings, when I say angelic beings, I mean faithful angelic beings, and I mean fallen angelic beings, angelic beings in their totality, that God gave angelic beings a time to choose. And seemingly, based on Revelation, chapter 12, chapter 13, chapter 11, somewhere in there, 11, 12, or 13, where it says that Satan drew a third, the dragon drew a third of the stars of heaven with him. Most people take that to imply that one third of the angelic beings align themselves with Satan. Now, it seems, without the scripture speaking specifically to it, 
that for angelic beings, their time of choosing is over. There's no more time of choosing for them. So it would seem that they had a time of choosing, then their time of cho- then their choices were fixed, and there's no more time of choosing. It would seem, I would say, the same will be true of human beings. God has given us now, this time on this earth, as a time of choosing. When we pass from this life to the next, the time of choosing ends, and then we go into eternal existence in either heaven or hell with our choices made and no longer with the opportunity to make choices. So that's how I would answer that question, Pitasone. I hope that's helpful for you. Jordan asks a question. What is your view on apologetics in the body of Christ? Uh, Jordan asked two questions, so I'll deal with the first one there. Um, What is your view on apologetics in the body of Christ? Jordan, I thank the Lord for quality apologetics ministries in the body of Christ. Now, look, I, I don't spend a ton of time looking over these resources, but I see that there's some people who do it good in the body of Christ. Uh, as I mentioned before, I'll say it again because maybe you weren't on at the very beginning of the program. Uh, my friend Mike Winger, I think, does a great job with apologetics on his YouTube channel, Bible Thinker, uh, or Mike Winger, just search for me on YouTube. He has a marvelous, marvelous ministry, and, and I think he does a great job with apologetics. I think Elisa Childers does a great job. I've been listening to her podcast uh, for several years and occasionally look on, on her uh, YouTube, uh, what she's doing there. Again, um, I think quality content from there. And in addition, I've listened to some Sean McDowell, and I think uh, he does a fine job with his apologetics work. Now, There are good apologetics ministries out there, but there's also bad ones. There are apologetics ministries that, to my perspective, from my understanding, my discernment, whatever you want to call it, they're in it for the clicks. They're in it just to gain notoriety or controversy. Uh, They're exaggerating. They're not representing those with whom they disagree Fairly. You know, it's a common thing in apologetics to just maybe just in these poor apologetics ministries to just kind of take one verse or one sentence out of an entire sermon and judge a man's or woman's entire ministry based on one sentence. Look, you got to do better than that. So there are apologetics ministries that do a good job. There's apologetics ministries that I think do a poor job out there. So uh, use some discernment and look for the ones that do it fairly, that do it well. Second question from Jordan is, Moses is one of my favorite men in the Bible. Why do you think the judgment of God was so firm on him for his disobedience? Jordan, I think for a few reasons. Number one, I think God wanted to show that Moses was not an exception. When the children of Israel refused to take the promised land by faith, this is in the book of Numbers, when they refused to take the promised land by faith, God said, this generation is going to die in the wilderness, except for Joshua and Caleb, 
the two of the 12 faithful spies that brought back a good report. So, um, when God said no exceptions, he wanted to say there's no exceptions. It'll only be Joshua and Caleb, even including Moses. And I think it's sort of one reason God did this, and I think this is just one reason, maybe not even the biggest reason, but one reason God did this was sort of show that no man is above accountability before the Lord, as great as Moses was. And, and you got to say, Moses was one of the great men, not only of the Bible, but of all history. Moses certainly was a great man. Yet he was not above God's discipline. That's number one. Number two, the nature of Moses' sin was misrepresenting God in front of the whole nation. Again, we find this in the book of Numbers, where Moses struck the rock repeatedly. When Moses was angry with the people of God, when God was not angry with them. Both of these were important and significant ways in which Moses misrepresented God before the people. And that's a serious sin for a leader. But then plus, it was just in the eternal plan of God that Moses, representing the law, Moses is the great lawgiver, the law was not going to lead the people of God into the land of promise. No, God had Joshua. By the way, you, you may very well know that the name Joshua is the same name as Jesus. Just Joshua or Yahshua in Hebrew, Jesus in Greek, it's the same name. God wanted it clear. It's not the law that's going to lead God's people into the land of promise. It's going to be Joshua. It's going to be Jesus. So there's three quick reasons I can think of, Jordan, why God punished Moses so severely. Hey, I'm going to pause before the next question I address, because I, I just want to say that thank the Lord on our YouTube channel, we're getting close to 100,000 subscribers. And look, I don't want to act like it's such a big deal. I mean, there's not much difference between having a YouTube channel of 95,000 subscribers and 100,000 subscribers, but it's a nice milestone. And so to celebrate this nice milestone, the first question and answer session we have after reaching 1,000 or 100,000 subscribers on YouTube, I'm going to give away this book. It's a great book by Bishop William Taylor of Africa, The Story of My Life. Again, I just think it's a remarkable book. Uh, very cool, greatly illustrated, very cool book about a great man of God. Going to give away this book probably next Thursday to a random person in our YouTube audience. Uh, you just need to be with us during the program. We'll give you all the rules next week. I anticipate God willing, and if we live, we'll make up those last few hundred subscribers pretty soon, and um, we'll do that next week. So you may want to join us for that. By the way, next week is going to be January 26th. So if you're watching this on video, recorded video, 
and we're after January 26th, you're too late. Sorry about it, but that's when we're going to do it next time. Let me go now to the question from G, testimony. Could you speak about God as Father biblically and maybe share how you see God as Father in your life? The concept, G testimony, of God as a Father is not emphasized in the Old Testament. It's not absent, but it's not emphasized. Matter of fact, I think that the imagery of God being the husband to Israel is more prominent in the Old Testament than the imagery of God being a father to his people. But it, it, it's in there. I remember that great psalm. I can't tell you which psalm it is in verse. But it says, the Lord pities his people like a father pities his children. It's a beautiful phrase about the compassion of God. And I think that that's really part of why this image of God as father is emphasized in the New Testament. It's not because God changed. No, God forbid. God doesn't change. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever, and God is the eternal one. He does not change. However, the Bible says that the law came by Moses. Grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. In the person of Jesus, there was an embodiment of the love and grace and goodness of God that we just don't find as prominently expressed in the Old Testament. Now, please, it is in the Old Testament. God is revealed as a God of love, mercy, and grace in the Old Testament. It's just more prominent in the New Testament. And I think that's part of God's revelation as a father. A father speaks of love, of care, of compassion. A father speaks of authority. And we recognize God as authority. And I also think that it's significant that God in the scriptures is overwhelmingly presented to us as a father. Overwhelmingly presented to us in the male representation rather than in the female. Now, I think if you go through the scriptures, there's maybe about six places in the scriptures. I, I could go through them and, you know, display them for you. Maybe that's time for another video. I think we've done some videos on this in the past. But there's about six places in the scriptures where God makes some kind of analogy between something female or feminine and himself. Um, I would gather you as a hen gathers her chicks. You know, a hen, of course, is a female bird. And so, uh, a female chicken, actually, or a bird, I guess you could say. And so, God's speaking of that, and th th that's one, and uh, I've cherished you like a mother cherishes her nursing infant. Th there is, to my count, somewhere in the neighborhood of about six places in the scriptures where God is beautifully presented to us as having some kind of female characteristic as a mother, or usually in some aspect. Now, there are probably thousands of places in the scriptures where God is presented to us in the male, in the masculine. 
Every pronoun that's used of God is used in the masculine. Over and over again, it's he, him, his. Um, just again and again and again, the Lord is presented to us in masculine terms as a father, not as a mother. Now, again, there, there are a few places where God is represented, but, but the weight between them both is overwhelming, absolutely overwhelming. Now, it's not because God is male. God is God. He, he's beyond what we think of as male or female. But God deliberately chose to present himself to humanity in his inspired word as overwhelmingly male. And I think part of that is because God knows we need spiritually a father. We need to respect the authority. And if I could say the patriarchal position of God, our father. God is a king, not a queen. God is a God, not a goddess. Or God is God, not a goddess. And, and again, there are a few places, maybe about six in all of scriptures, that present God in a more feminine form or some kind of feminine analogy or representation. But overwhelmingly, the representation is male. So I think that's part of it. And listen, I was blessed, G testimony, to have a good father. My father passed away this last year and uh, he was the first of either my or my wife's parents to pass on. And I miss my dad. My dad was a blessing in my life. There was something amazingly gratifying about knowing that you pleased your father. And I feel that that rubs off in my relationship with God. Now, if people didn't have a good earthly father, and there's more than a few people out there, I think it's wonderful that you probably know by intuition what a good father is, even if you don't know by experience. And you can look to God to fulfill and to be that which you need in a perfect father. Okay, let me go on to the next couple questions here. Here's one from Lou who asks, what is a good biblical response from a parent to an adult child living in the home about a child carrying on an intimate relationship outside the home? Well, Lou, I don't know if there's one universal answer that fits in every circumstance. Family problems are often complicated. They're a twisted ball of string that needs to be untangled. But I'll give you some biblical principles that especially if somebody is in your home, supported by you, you have reason to um, expect certain conduct from them. And, and I think that it, that's okay to do. Now, you run into the difficult issue of, well, what if my child just defies? I say, you can't do this, and they do it anyway. Well, then you're, you're sort of faced with the uh, situation. Are you going to continue to allow them to live in your home? There may be some tough love that is necessary. Of course, 
short of asking them to leave your home. Uh, there can be privileges that are taken away. There can be, you know, penalties that are imposed. But a, a parent has a right over any child that's in their home to direct how they live and to, well, again, maybe the right isn't the proper way because that right can be used in a wrong way. But I, I do not subscribe to the idea at all that once a child comes to a certain age, 15, 16, whatever, that they can live however they please, supported by their parents, with, with where they live, with the food they eat, with, you know, whatever other accompaniments they have, and the parents obligated to support them no matter how the child wants to live. That just doesn't work. Now, Lou, I'd give you one other piece of advice, is... Be careful about making threats or rules or standards that you won't enforce. It's a bad thing to imply that they're no longer welcome in your home if they do something. But when they do it, you don't do anything about it. I think it's important to have standards that you will follow through on. And so, uh, these are difficult situations. Very sorry for this difficulty for you, Lou, but I'll just give you the general principle that um, God has given a headship and authority, and even if the children don't respect it, especially minor children, so to speak, who are in the home, uh, they should be caused to respect the parent's authority. Next question comes from the Christian conservative who says, hey, I was having a conversation with a brother and he said that demons don't need to be invited for people to be demon-possessed. What are your thoughts on that? Well, Christian conservative, I can just say this. There are aspects to demonic possession that we don't quite understand. I mean, look, let's face it. The Bible doesn't really specifically tell us all the circumstances under which a person might become demon-possessed. We often sort of assume that some kind of foothold, some kind of door needs to be open to the demonic. And maybe that's the case. But we have to admit, the scriptures don't specifically tell us that. So, I'm going to have to kind of throw up uh, something of a, I don't really know. Because the scriptures don't exactly say. Certainly, there are things that person people can do to almost invite demonic possession. The occult, drug usage, um, things just that have to do with the demonic and the black arts and all the rest. I, I think there's many things, but I, I will say this as well, that it is possible for people to open doors to the demonic that they had no idea that they were. As a matter of fact, I think that's the case most of the time. I would think it would be very rare for a person to knowingly, consciously invite demonic possession. Usually, it's done deceptively, where, yes, it's true they're opening a door, but they don't understand the ramifications of that door that they're opening. Hope that's helpful for you there. Uh, next question from Christopher, who asks... Even though Satan cannot do evil apart from God allowing him, 
How does this not make God passively responsible for the evil taking place, especially in the book of Job? Well, Christopher, there is a sense in which God has a, would have a passive responsibility for evil in this world under any circumstance. Let's just say, and I don't think this is the case, but let's just pretend that Satan was a creature that could operate completely independently of God. In other words, he needed no allowance or permission from God whatsoever. Satan could do whatever he pleased. Now, again, we're speaking only hypothetically. But even if that were the case, God would still have some kind of passive responsibility because he created Satan. You say, well, Lord, you didn't do this, but this being you created did it. So God, as being God, has some kind of responsibility for everything, no matter what. Now, you're right, Christopher, in making a distinction, and I think this is a very important distinction, between active and passive God allows sin, but God never makes anybody sin. God allows temptation, but God never tempts somebody. God allows evil, but he doesn't directly work evil in the, think that, in the sense that we normally think of it. So, I, I understand the point you're getting at, but I, I think that there's no other way as long as we believe there is a God. Now, here's the point of it. What God is working through his plan of the ages is greater than if sin and evil never existed. Christopher, this is a theme I love to speak about, and I try to talk about it often. The fact that God's goal in his plan of the ages is not to bring humanity back to the innocence of the Garden of Eden. God's plan in the large scope of his plan of the ages is to give more to us in Jesus Christ than we ever lost in the fall. Redeemed man is greater than innocent man. Here's the thing, though. You can't have redemption unless you allow a fall. So, in the short term, you could say, hey, doesn't God have some responsibility in that? In the long term, you'd say, God deserves all the glory for his good and perfect plan. Hope that helps you there, Christopher. And the last question we get to here is from Junebug, who says, did the people of the Old Testament have knowledge that Yahweh was one God but three persons, Psalm 110 inspires this question when David says, the Lord said to my Lord. Junebug, I would say that they did not have any sophisticated idea of the Trinity in the Old Testament. There are hints, there are aspects, and you bring up a good one right there in Psalm 110. But it was cloudy. It was shadowy. 
This is something that is clearly understood in the New Testament. And then when we clearly understand the New Testament, we look back to the Old Testament and say, oh, oh, look at that. Isn't that awesome? I see just how you did that, Lord. So I hope that makes sense to you, Junebuck. Uh, I would not say that they, there's uh, really an understanding of the triune nature of God, one God in three persons. It's something that was more understood and revealed in New Testament times. And then once understanding it, we look back and it looks very clear. So I hope that's clear. It, it was it was shadowy. It was not entirely clear. The, the focus wasn't sharp, but it was there, but just not clearly revealed. All right. That is our last question for the day. Friends, if you have not yet subscribed to our YouTube channel, why don't you go ahead and do that? And you know, I normally don't ask for subscriptions, even, oh, subscribe, like, as my granddaughter says, smash that like button, uh, click on notifications, okay, all that stuff, that's yeah, fine, great, do it, I, I would appreciate it, but we're getting close to 100,000 subscribers, and when we cross that line, which, God willing, and if we live, it'll be before next Thursday's question and answer, Next Thursday on the question and answer, I'm going to give away this book, The Story of My Life by William Taylor. We'll do a random drawing for it next week. I hope that you can join us for it. So God bless you. Thank you for joining me today. And I pray God gives you a wonderful week walking in his spirit. Bye-bye. You've been listening to a message by Pastor David Guzik for Enduring Word. For more information about our ministry and how to grow in your relationship with Jesus, please visit EnduringWord.com.